Hi, I'm Red Mom Caitlin. And I'm Blue Mom Shelly. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Red Mom, Blue Mom podcast. We're two moms with opposing political views who enjoy talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We believe in the importance of dialogue to help us learn from one another, especially when we have differences of opinion. Our goal isn't necessarily to agree, but where we disagree, to keep talking. We hope we inspire you to have real conversations on important issues with people with whom you disagree. And we hope our legislators are doing the same. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. Um, Before we get started, listeners, I just have to share with you, if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you know that Shelly and I, despite our best efforts, have sometimes struggled with audio issues on the podcast. We really do try our hardest to make this a quality production, uh, but I think both Shelly and I have been a little bit surprised to learn how much there is involved with audio engineering. Um, So we're excited today because Shelly found on Amazon these awesome headsets with a microphone. So we're really excited to see if this will help with some of our audio problems. We would of course love your feedback, but thank you for your patience with us. We know some of you have listened to all of our episodes. Some of them have been better than others. Hopefully going forward with our new setup with headsets and we look very professional, um, those issues should be taken care of. So <laughs> Let, us know. Let us know what you think. Thanks for bearing with us. All right. So today's episode is going to be a little different than normal. I told Shelly a few weeks ago that there are so many topics that come up that I am interested to talk to her about, even if they're not kind of quote unquote worthy of a full length episode. So with that in mind, today's episode is going to be what we call a lightning round. We're going to cover a variety of topics and we're going to try to have limited conversation on each one. We'll do our best to keep it short and sweet. We hope you like this new format. We're going to try to do this lightning round every once in a while going forward, in addition to, of course, continuing our deep dive conversations on some of the bigger issues. So let's get started with topic number one. Shelley, you want to kick us off? Sure. So last month, uh, I read that uh, Trump's White House was considering seriously a proposal to release the immigrants that he's required to release uh, but doesn't want to release to go ahead and 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 release them into what he calls sanctuary cities and that that is uh, cities where local police um, has not expressed a willingness to 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 screen people for immigration violations so I'm curious to hear Caitlin whether you were disturbed to read that in the sense that you know any president who wants to sort of take political uh, to take retribution against uh, certain states or cities that he thinks are are not supporting him not doing what he wishes um, I was concerned with that and I was wondering what you thought Um, not at all concerned and I have to tell you this was Trump at his best (laughs) I love that he did this this was exactly the type of response and kind of political gamesmanship that I think Trump uh, it can excel at. And he's not always perfect at it. But I really loved it when he did this. And you let did? me tell you why. Yes. Um, I think people on both sides of the aisle, frankly, play political games with, with immigrants. And I'm not trying to diminish True. the plight of those people or anything like that. But if we look at this from a political strategy perspective, what I love about what Trump did was he exposed what I consider to be the hypocrisy. So for years, certainly for the duration of Trump's presidency, but probably even prior to that. You have Democratic leaders of cities and states across the country singing praises about the benefits of sanctuary cities, patting themselves on their back about how welcoming they are to um, people of all walks of life, illegal or not, doesn't matter. 
But now when the rubber hits the road and Trump's kind of threatening, as you said, to send illegal immigrants to their cities, you know, everybody's kind of putting their hands up and saying, whoa, 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 let's not do that. It's going a step too far. You're playing games, et cetera, et cetera. These are the same people, though, that for years have been talking about all the benefits of sanctuary cities to their to their community. Um, so I think it's a great strategy uh, on behalf of Trump to kind of expose that hypocrisy. That's so interesting. Um, no, I, I viewed it completely differently. Um, first of all, I thought Trump sort of created the issue about sanctuary cities. All it is is local enforcement, lo- local law enforcement saying that it's not their job to uh, enforce immigration rules because you don't want a, a situation, for example, where someone gets pulled over for a minor traffic violation and all of a sudden they're being racially profiled um, because the local police think that they need to figure out if this um, person is uh, legal or illegal because that raises all kinds of constitutional issues and and civil rights issues and a lot of these police forces don't want to do that job. They have their job to do as opposed to the federal job. So I thought that he has has just created the you know this term this this issue with sanctuary cities and then for me what I saw was isn't it political first of all I don't think that a lot of people are even worried about living next to um, immigrants so I don't think that was the the Democrats response Uh, I think it was wow isn't that political retribution I mean what would you think if Obama had sort of punished Alabama or Georgia or one of the conservative states um, in some way, you know, like what Trump did with the wildfires in California? What would you think if, if presidents on both sides made it a habit to sort of divide the states and, and start saying, well, I'm going to give you, you know, FEMA relief and I'm not going to give you FEMA relief. I mean, we're a country. We're the United States of America. We need to be united regardless of what some politician thinks uh, is his support base. Yeah, but I think the difference in my mind is Trump is not punishing these states. So, for example, Gavin Newsom um, has tweeted about sanctuary cities. He's very proud of the fact that California, I think, is a sanctuary state, certainly the city of San Francisco, where he was most recently mayor. Um, He's tweeted before all of these benefits of sanctuary cities, including fewer crimes committed, higher medium household incomes, lower poverty rates, lower unemployment rates, um, stating things like these sanctuary city policies keep us safe, the poverty rate is lower, etc., etc. So if he believes that, if he thinks that having all of these illegal immigrants in his city as a sanctuary city or a sanctuary state, whatever the case may be, that's a huge benefit, right? That should not be a punishment from Trump. I would say a Gavin Newsom of the world um, should welcome that, right? He's been talking sure. the talk for years about how wonderful this policy is, but now when the rubber's hitting the road and Trump's actually threatening to do it, and I don't think he's going to do it, by the way, pragmatically, no, true. I think it's a terrible thing to do because you release, obviously, these um, undocumented illegal immigrants into the country. I don't care if they're going to San Francisco or Denver or Dallas, Texas, doesn't matter you obviously lose control over monitoring where they are and where they go. So pragmatically, I don't like this solution. But from a political strategy perspective, I love it for those reasons. And I think Trump is really holding the Gavin Newsoms of the world, you know, their feet to the fire to say, hey, you've wanted this for many years, and now I'm giving it to you. It's not a punishment. It's not retribution. And now you're saying, no, 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 thank you. So I think that's really interesting. Okay, so you didn't see it as retribution. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, what did you think about his other Trump's other recent comment, or I should say, joke uh, and laughter with respect to uh, migrants? You know, we've talked in our episode about migration. We've talked about white nationalism and this language that he uses that bothers me about the the invasion, um, which I think is designed to invoke fear. Follows this sort of racist um, white nationalist uh, rise in Europe and. And it was the language cited by uh, the New Zealand mass shooter and other white supremacists. They have to defend themselves against this invasion. So Trump is at a rally recently, and he says, you know, you can't use weapons. Our border, our border, brave uh, border patrol agents don't use weapons. They can't do that. And he says, so what are you going to do when this, when the migrants are coming? And someone in the crowd yells, shoot them and Trump supporters cheer and rally around that and he laughs merely makes a joke uh, about the ability to get away with saying that in the panhandle Uh, so I was curious to see if you were offended by that Uh, you know he's joking about shooting potentially asylum seekers yeah I mean I'm sure our liberal listeners aren't going to love this but honestly it didn't bother me that much did I love it no is it another example of something that I think Trump says Uh, spontaneously off the cuff that I really wish he wasn't responding that way. I wish he would respond in a more, I don't know, civilized manner, empathetic manner, what have you. So did I like the way that he phrased it? No. But at the same time, it was obviously a joke, granted a joke in very poor taste, but I don't think there's any reasonable person that would say, oh, Trump really believes in shooting migrants. I mean, it was clearly a joke tasteless joke to be sure, but he was just kind of responding to an off-color joke that someone shouted out as a rally. He certainly didn't plan for that to happen. So it didn't bother me too much. And I will say, I wish that for all of the outrage that's happened over Trump's response, and it's not a huge news story, but it certainly made the news. I wish there was that much outrage for American citizens that have been killed by illegals, because I feel like it's sometimes a little bit disproportionate. Well, you and I have talked about that. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few American citizens who get killed by illegals. It's a, it's a problem. It's a fear that Trump has created, but um, it's a fear except for the people that have been killed by illegal immigrants immigrants right I mean there are examples where that has happened agree well, that it's there's, not a there's data that shows that illegal immigrants commit less crime than Americans so which it's, goes it's, back to the point then folks who have sanctuary cities should be welcoming these illegal and immigrants I think they would community. I think they were worried about the retribution but on the shooting migrants comment it didn't worry me so much that Trump said something outrageous. What bothers me is that he gets his base all in, and at these rallies all riled up about, you know, shooting um, unarmed women and children who are possibly seeking asylum. It reminded me of a, a, fas- a, no- a Nazi comment or, you know, uh, you know that the fact that he's getting his base riled up about this idea. Mm, um, I mean- that's what bothers me, not so much Trump and whether he would personally do that yeah I think it's a stretch again I am part of the Trump I am part of the Trump base right so and I'm not saying I'm representative of everybody but uh, I don't know I just don't I don't think it's quite that serious or or quite that um, inflammatory perhaps as you do but I don't think you would have laughed or cheered at that if you were at that rally no I would hope not again I don't think it's an appropriate thing to say but I also in the context of everything going on in the world and um, you know an off-color joke made at a rally where Trump was on stage and had to kind of react real time do I wish he would have reacted differently sure but he didn't and you know it is what it is it's another example of where Trump kind of responds in a way that I wish he would have done a little bit differently 
All right, so let's move on to our next topic. So uh, everybody's favorite socialist, Bernie Sanders, Democratic uh, candidate for president, uh, was in the news recently. Um, There was a CNN town hall back in April, and Bernie was asked whether or not he thought felons should be allowed to vote while they're incarcerated, not just after their release, but actually while they're incarcerated, while they're in jail. The example that was brought up specifically was the guy who's in jail for the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. That was the example that was specifically used. And Bernie's response was this. He said, quote, yes, even for terrible people, because once you start chipping away and you say, well, that guy committed a terrible crime, not going to let him vote. Well, that person did that, not going to let that person vote. You're running down a slippery slope. So I'm interested, Shelley, to see what you think about Bernie's thought about allowing incarcerated felons the right to vote. I don't necessarily agree with Bernie about incarcerated felons, um, although one of his points was on the right, they used the example of the Boston Marathon bomber. No one hates anyone more than we hate him, whereas there's millions of people in prison who maybe committed a, a minor a crime and then are deprived of the right to vote for a long time. The problem is with, uh, you know, he came out and said he thinks both during prison and after prison, uh, and then I think it was um, other the other presidential candidate, Pete Buttigieg, who came out and said he disagrees with Bernie on the issue during prison, but after prison he feels strongly that uh, felons should get back their right to vote, and I agree with him, and I think that's an important point and you know the 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 history on this is that is that after you know the civil war there was a series of laws that were designed to put people of color in jail for uh, um, sort of randomly uh, crimes finding unfair reasons to put people in jail crimes that hadn't been on the book books and you had Jim Crow laws and you had um, a, a use now of, of labor free labor in prisons and then over time you had even after the civil rights movement you had some laws that were very very tough on crime and and minor drug offenses and then you had sort of a mass privatization of prisons and this history growing to a mass incarceration of a lot of people. We've got something like 22% um, of the world's prisoners, even though we only have 4% of the world's population. So we've got this mass incarceration issue in the United States. And who's incarcerated? Well, something like 90% people who would vote uh, Democrat or Independent. Uh, and only 10% people who would vote uh, Republican. And so this idea of disenfranchising people in prison and then after prison for life, depending on what state you're in, and and it's very hard in some states to get back your your voting rights, um, that's a problem because you're disenfranchising a whole bunch of people and they happen to all be, you know, in the other party, voting for the other party. So I think that's where the problem is and that's what Bernie is speaking to. But have you heard folks on the right advocating for limiting voting rights even after you are released? Or does that happen yes. today? Because I, I agree. I agree with you. I agreed with Buttigieg. I agree with, I think, Kamala Harris, although she had to kind of massage her message a little bit. I think she ultimately came out and said the same thing that, hey, if you're a felon and you're incarcerated, part of that punishment is that you lose your right to, to vote, right? You kind of right. give up some of those those traditional rights as a citizen. And I agree with that. But I I'm also okay agree with, with you. 
and some of those candidates that once you are out of prison and you've served your debt to society, you should regain that vote. So I guess I'm interested to hear, are there Republicans or conservatives or anyone really that's proposing to keep that right away from them for the duration of their lifetime? Well, that those laws are already on the books. So there's in, in certain states, there's been a passage, uh, conservative um, passage of several laws and different, they vary state by state that disenfranchise felons or ex-felons to different extents. So for example, one was passed recently um, in a southern state that would only allow ex-convicts to get back their rights after they pay for a bunch of fines that that people can't pay. Uh, So you could go forever. Or there's an application process in other states that is is very tedious. And so there are all these different disenfranchisement laws. And as a federal, you know, I would think as the federal position should be, no, um, you get, it's, it's a right to vote. It's a constitutional right to vote. You get it back when you're out of prison because it really affects, it really affects um, people of color. I think I read something like one in nine African-American children has a parent in prison. And so you're disenfranchising this entire class of people. Uh, and that's where the problem lies. So I think the Democrats have a point with uh, making sure that at least ex-felons can vote. Here's another topic that was in the news recently, uh, and I'm curious to, to hear whether this bothered you, Caitlin, as much as it did me. So, and this has been in the news for, for you know, the last several years, but apparently uh, this year, 60 of America's largest companies were reported not to have paid any tax whatsoever and received billions of dollars in refunds. So Amazon was in the news. They uh, had $11.2 billion in profit, paid no tax, received a refund. Uh, I'm wondering if this is, you know, I I see this as a huge issue. In fact, I think some of these other issues that we talk about and we talk about abortion, we talk about different, you know, uh, different issues. I think the real, all of those are distractions from one of the real problems in this country, which is this growing wealth inequity and fewer and fewer people controlling all the wealth and the, you know, the overwhelming majority of Americans paying taxes and then the largest profit earners, these large corporations not paying any taxes at all. Were you concerned when you read that about Amazon? Well, no, because I think the statement that they don't pay any taxes is incorrect. So first of all, Amazon does pay taxes. They may not have paid a federal tax, but if you look at their um, financial statements in 2017, as an example, Amazon paid a billion dollars in taxes, uh, in income taxes, I should clarify. In 2018, the amount went up to almost $1.2 billion. So they do pay taxes, but they don't pay a federal or a quote unquote corporate tax. But let's understand why. The reason why is that Amazon is taking advantage of various legal tax incentives, tax credits, and other things, which by the way, it's not just Amazon. I know Amazon is often picked on, but as you just mentioned, there's 60 companies. For the benefit of our, of our listeners, some of those other companies are also big names, right? We, we're talking about Netflix, we're talking about General Motors, JetBlue, IBM, lots of other kind of household brand names. They're not paying any federal taxes either, um, at least for the 2018 tax year was the, was the uh, research that I read. But again, let's talk about why and then understand if maybe you're still as upset about it. So a couple of reasons why Amazon and those other companies are often not paying as much tax. The first is because they're getting a lot of tax credits for research and development. Now, you can argue whether or not they're getting too much or too little. Um, Amazon is one of the, the top 
companies in the U.S. that got an R&D tax credit, um, even more so than Alphabet, uh, which is the owner of Google. Um, but the, the trade-off or the benefit, right, for I think you and me and, and consumers and, and business and enterprise and innovation in general is that Amazon, I think you would agree, is a very innovative company, right? So they're investing in R&D, but the result is they're delivering amazing products and goods and services um, as a result of that investment. The second piece for Amazon and again some of these other companies is that they are investing in property, plant, and equipment, right? They're investing in real estate. They're investing in job creation. And I think if you lived in Seattle or Luxembourg, where I lived when I was working for Amazon, um, it's hard not to see how much investment Amazon is making in those cities and all of the job creation, not only for Amazon, but kind of that halo effect that happens as well. Those cities enjoy a lot of benefits from, from big companies coming in. And then the last piece, which I don't know a lot about this, but this is what I had read on a Forbes article, was that there's some tax benefit for a big company like Amazon um, related to how they structure employee compensation, specifically around employee stock. And I don't know the specifics there, and I don't want to misspeak about that, but my understanding is that's part of it. So, you know, the headline is sensational, right? That Amazon is not paying any tax or really not paying any corporate tax, but it's because they're reinvesting that money in their operations. I don't think they're. Uh, I don't think it's fair to have the option to reinvest in your company when we don't have the option to reinvest. Maybe you want to reinvest in your household versus pay your federal income taxes. So I don't know why corporations would have that opportunity more than the the rest of the Americans who are supporting them. But you're um, not creating any jobs in your household. You're not investing in real estate. You're not investing in the growth of a city, right? Right. But what they're doing is what, what they're doing with these tax breaks is paying their executives more and having more and more profit. I mean, I, I'm not persuaded by some of the what you described as the reasons. These are various, you know, what what could be described as tax loopholes. Um, I see them as uh, subsidies for corporations. They're uh, some people refer to that as corporate welfare. Why would we, as taxpayers, the rest of uh, the rest of Americans, be funding Amazon's research and development when they are profiting from their own, you know, they're going to have better, the better technology they can have, the more research, the more development they can do, then the more profit they're going to make. That's the the private, if we're a fan of the private market, then let the private market decide whether they should um, do more research and development. We shouldn't be subsidizing that. Uh, They can do that in order to increase their own profits. Uh, similarly, with uh, depreciating expenses, it's 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 just another tax law that benefits them and doesn't and doesn't uh, benefit ordinary Americans. Uh, the stock options too. That's just a, a a sort of loophole that results in avoidance of major tax for no reason. And so I I think each of the the different deductions and reasons why they're paying no income tax. No, that doesn't make me less offended by it. It makes me more because I see that all of those things are written into the tax code to allow that corporation to make that much profit without paying taxes and that means the rest of us have to make up for it we have to support the federal federal government without the help of massive um, uh, profit uh, earning corporations like Amazon yeah I just look at it differently I, I think you know the impact that an Amazon or a Netflix or a General Motors or an IBM or whomever their impact on society, the good that they're doing for society around job creation, innovation, uh, investment in cities, the halo effect that I referred to, et cetera, et cetera, that far outweighs anything I could ever do at a household level. So I, it just doesn't bother me that sure, much. But and they, again, they get they paying get, taxes. They're just not paying that corporate tax. Right. Well, they, they, uh, 
which all of us are, the rest of us are, and they get to profit as a result of, of that benefit. That and so do we as consumers, right? I mean, I think your, your we ability pay for to... It. We pay for I I agree. And they, they pay, they have expenses to run that business. I, I would say you have two options if you feel strongly about it, right? Number one, don't shop at Amazon. And number two, work to change the tax code. But I don't begrudge Amazon or Netflix for taking advantage of existing law. Oh, neither do I. Uh, and I use Amazon myself. Uh, and I commend them for being a profitable company. I just think that they should have to pay the same taxes that, that the rest of us pay because the result when they're not is that you've got this decrease of, of the American middle class and you have more wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And that's one of our one of our pro- problems. We've got more and more people falling into poverty. And then in, in terms of the tax law, the, the new tax law that we talked about, we had an episode on this, it just sort of exacerbated this problem. Now there's even fewer corporate taxes being paid. And uh, you know, I've heard multiple CPAs say, it shouldn't matter your political party, conservative or not, this is the worst, some of the worst tax, tax legislation ever to pass. It just makes these, what I call corporate welfare, these handouts that we're providing to large corporations not small businesses, mind you. It makes them more pronounced. And so um, I think it's it's a problem. All right, Shelley, our next topic, I'd love to move on to Elizabeth Warren. She came out recently with a plan to um, offer student loan forgiveness, uh, benefiting, as she quoted, tens of millions of Americans. Uh, the plan would cancel student loan debt for more than 95% of borrowers and would entirely cancel student loan debt for more than 75% of Americans with student loan debt. Her plan also included some free college ideas, but for now, let's just focus on the student debt piece. Um, I think we've talked a little bit about education and student debt in past episodes, but would love to hear from you, Shelley, what you think about Elizabeth Warren's plan. Well, I agree with her that college should be free or affordable for all Americans. I don't know if I agree with her that we should, in terms of the method, I'm concerned that if we allow colleges to keep raising the price and then let the banks continue loaning money to students to pay that, and then we forgive that debt, that just means taxpayers are now going to pay the banks, uh, pay back the banks. So I agree that we need a way to make college uh, free or affordable. I think it's um, it's a great idea. I just think you have to be careful not to allow a plan like that to continue to balloon the cost like we've done with healthcare and insurance companies. Um, so that in, in principle, I agree with debt forgiveness, especially for people who are earning below a certain amount, like she addresses in her plan, but I think there must be a better way to do it than what Warren has proposed. So did you have college debt coming out of either undergrad or law school? Tons. Have you paid it off? Yes. Okay, so as did I, I had college debt coming out of undergrad, I didn't do graduate school, Um, and I paid it off, right? That was the agreement that I made to take out those loans. You made the agreement to take out those loans, and you and I did the responsible thing. We paid those things off. I'm struggling to understand with this idea of why should taxpayers now be on the hook for folks that have not done the responsible thing, who have not been able to pay off their debts, and I appreciate that it's hard to do and that this debt can, can trail people for decades coming out of school, but that's not really my responsibility. I don't think it's your responsibility either. So just at a kind of a philosophical level, that's where I struggle with the student loan forgiveness. First of all, it's kind of a knock in the teeth to those of us that actually did the right thing and paid off of our paid off our debts. And I just don't think it sets a really good precedence. And I know that often some on the left, at least, they love this idea of free stuff, quote unquote, free stuff, be it student loan forgiveness or free college. Um, 
someone's always paying for that, right? And I just, I have a lot of issues with, with me being expected as a taxpayer to pay for someone else's decisions around uh, taking on student loans. Sure. Well, I sort of agree with you that, again, we don't want to get the taxpayers um, supporting the banks. I'm not as worried about the, you know, the way you phrased that. Um, the problem is you've got now so many people in debt their entire lives. There's an increasing number of people over the age of 60 who still have student loans in the United States. So it's a, it's a real problem. And it's not that um, people on the left want a lot of free things. On the contrary, I think it would benefit our society tremendously if everyone could afford to get an education. That's just good for America. Um, and it should be, of all the things that we spend money on, you and I have talked about, if you just reduce the defense budget just a tiny bit, you could provide free education for Americans, which would be a great thing for, for America as a whole. And it would it would uh, improve our, our companies, our ability to, to be profitable, our, uh, our wealth, our bottom line, society generally, to have a more educated population. So I think the idea of free or, or affordable college is a wonderful idea. But I agree with you that, you know, you've got, my concern is that I don't want to bail out the banks when all the loans, you know, get forgiven. I don't want taxpayers to have to do that. So I think we agree on that piece. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to bail out the personal loan holders either. And I agree that there's a kind of a whole structure right now between academic institutions um, and banks and the federal loan program. There's all sorts of elements there that I think need to be addressed. Um, but I just have a lot of issues, and you've heard me talk about this before, around personal responsibility. If you decide to go to college or you decide to go to grad school or law school, whatever it may be, you are the one that's making that commitment to take on that loan. That is no one's responsibility, in my opinion but yours. And I do think the academic piece is interesting. And there was an article I read talking about how colleges and universities, they really benefit from this federal student loan kind of program and system, which really provides students to pay more for tuition than they normally would pay, right? And Like there is, mortgages. Like mortgages, right. And, there, and on the part of the college and the university, there's really no financial risk. And that's one of the other elements I think that Elizabeth Warren's plan or similar kind of debt forgiveness plans have, have been criticized for because taking aside even the personal responsibility piece and debating whether or not you know it's good for society if we forgive some debt what about these colleges and institutions that have zero incentive to kind of restructure or review their own economic structure um, and they have little incentive to ensure that students are graduating on time and that they're going to be equipped with the skills and the knowledge to find jobs that pay money. There was a stat that I read on the New York Times back in 2014, but I'm sure it's probably still roughly close. It said only 19% of public university full-time students, full-time students are graduating with their bachelor's degree in four years. So it's no wonder people have crushing student loan debt when that's kind of the, the statistic that we're working with. But I just, I don't like the personal responsibility element. And I also don't like the fact that this, this type of plan also seems to let these academic institutions off the hook. Right. I agree with you. I disagree with you on the personal responsibility argument because, again, I think that it would behoove all of us to have a more educated uh, population and to allow young people to go to school no matter what their means, whether they come from poor families or wealthy families. Um, but I agree with you that it, it would be silly to allow colleges to continue raising their prices while the taxpayers then foot the bill uh, and and to allow that the prices to tuition prices to be raised and then banks to make a bunch of interest off that and then for the taxpayers to foot the bill so I have a problem with that and so that would have to be addressed but you know there's there's other countries in the world where they have very very high quality education like ours and uh, the government is involved and people get to go at least uh, at least 
sometimes based on merit, uh, people get to go to school for free or little cost. And I think that that's a great thing. Okay, Shelly, so our last topic today is AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. My favorite. Uh, We talked a lot about AOC and her Green New Deal um, proposal that came out a couple months ago on a podcast that we did about climate change and the Green New Deal. Um, But she's come out again in the news. She's often in the news, as everybody knows, um, talking about how uh, the GOP has misinterpreted a quote or some talking points that she had given at the beginning of this year where she made a comment in an interview interview around Martin Luther King Day um, at an event in New York where she kind of made a comment something about we have 12 years left um, before presumably the world's coming to an end. That's not exactly what she said. Um, She was basically referring to a study from the IPCC which talked about how we have 12 years left to fix or to address climate change, not 12 years left on Earth. Um, Some on the GOP, including myself, thought that originally she meant we had 12 years left uh, on Earth, which obviously is a silly approach. Um, But now she's claiming it was all a joke and how lame, you know, those on the right are for for taking her seriously when when she said um, 12 years and and kind of clarifying that she meant 12 years to fix it. Um, That's said, I would love to understand from you, Shelley, if you think, and I know AOC is a, a prominent voice on, on behalf of the left around climate change, do you think that these types of what I would consider a gaffe, maybe not being as clear um, in some of her initial talking points, she subsequently clarified, do you think they diminish her credibility at all uh, on this topic of climate change? No, I think the right and the right media is way too hard on her. She didn't say that the world is ending in 12 years. She uh, is being asked to, to, to defend a statement. She has spoken repeatedly about the that we have 12 years to cut emissions in half. And um, she speaks about her Green New Deal and, and why doing nothing is not a good option, which she's right about that. Um, and, and, you know, you and I have an episode on AOC and the Green New Deal where we talk a lot about climate change. Um, and we talk in that episode about the UN Intergover- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that had come out, um, which is where this 12 years number came from. It's a, it's a multi-hundred page report. A lot of scientists agree that if 97% of scientists agree (laughs) well some overwhelming majority of scientists agree that's a joke listeners for those of you that haven't listened to our green new deal episode (laughs) caitlin's skeptical of uh of the science on this but some overwhelming majority of scientists agree that um if the earth warms up another say three degrees fahrenheit from where where it is now it would be bad for a number of reasons and that's what this report is on um and the report um has the scientific reasons why we are headed that way if we don't take action and why in 12 years or so if we don't take any action and the earth warms up that much more that there it will be hard to reverse some of the negative effects that we're going to feel um that the the earth is going to suffer by virtue of uh, the change over time in uh, the earth's temperature. So she's right to make a call for action. Uh, She didn't make up this 12-year number. Uh, This is from a a very serious and reputable scientific report. I just think that uh, Fox News and the conservative media were all over this, and they like to try to um, take her quotes out of context and tear them apart. Um, and insist that she's making inaccurate statements. Uh, I agree that maybe she's not as polished as some of our older politicians. She's, what, 29, 30 years old? Uh, But I think she speaks generally well, and she's right on many points. 
Uh, and so I, I think they're too hard on her. I personally think AOC is God's gift to conservatism and the Republican uh, effort because I think she's an, an unserious or a not serious person. I think she regularly makes gaffes. I think she regularly misspeaks. I know you and I just disagree about her. I think she's great from that perspective. So I hope I hope she stays front and center and shares her ideas all day long because I don't think they make any sense. Oh, I don't think I think uh, I think they're way too hard on her and take some of her words out of context. Uh, I think, like I say, she possibly could be more polished, but I think she actually just tries to speak, just sort of speak truth to power, and 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 that's why she's very popular on the left. So um, you know, and I think the the right just sees her as a threat and they just can't they can't dislike her enough yeah i think many of us on the right really love her for the reasons that i just outlined and we'll see i don't know if aoc is going to be long for for congress i'll, I'll be interested to see if she gets uh, elected for another term i know there's already a lot of talk about primarying her in uh, in new york so we'll see i think uh, even among her own party compatriots like nancy pelosi i know has been somewhat critical of aoc perhaps even threatened for within the reasons. party she's yeah she's been very critical of democrats and and establishment democrats no, on I agree the issue that. of climate change she says, you know, there's been too much complacency with Democrats as well, uh, that there needs to be more urgency. Yeah, so. no, she's been consistent on that for sure. I, I think she's consistently wrong, of course, and you and I disagree on that. But um, I, I do wonder if she's building bridges or making enemies even within her own party and, and what that will mean for future election opportunities for her. Sure, and you're, you're right to be concerned about that because... Uh, you know, lots of politicians have gone the careful route to make sure they continue to get reelected and continue to have donors. And she's chosen to speak what she thinks is the truth instead of being so careful. And I think she should be commended for that as opposed to um, to vilified for it. So, Shelley, thanks so much for doing our lightning round today. I love being able to talk about these, again, kind of smaller topics or um, updates to topics that perhaps we've covered in the past, things like immigration or the Green New Deal or any number of issues. Um, I like this opportunity to circle back with you and talk about some of these things. There are a million other examples along the lines of what we already talked about today um, that hopefully we can cover in the future. But I love having just the opportunity to chat about these, kind of get your feedback, have a little bit of back and forth as as always, I appreciate your perspective. I agree. This is fun. And listeners, if you have any ideas what you want to hear us talk about, um, please email us at redmombluemompodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.